Hey, this is Big Rev. Thanks for tuning in to Masterclass Theology, a weekly podcast where we study books of the Bible a verse at a time and apply it to our lives. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Let's rock. Welcome to Masterclass Theology. I am Big Rev. And I'm Professor D. We are in Philippians chapter 2 tonight. Philippians chapter 2 has a special distinction. It is a chapter of high Christology. It, it gets almost no higher than this. You, you could argue possibly Colossians chapter 1 would be right up there as well. But this is, in terms of theology, Mick, we're going to be talking Christology tonight. That's right. Very high Christology. What we mean by that is uh, we are very, very much high on Jesus, that he is he is exactly who he claimed to be and who the Bible claims to be. We're not making excuses. We are very, very much, this is very dedicated theology towards the doctrine of, of Christ and the second person of the Trinity. And so tonight we're, again, at Philippians 2, it's going to be a whirlwind of a chapter, but we got this. God, thank you for this lesson tonight. Thank you for this opportunity. I'm so grateful for my, my dear friend, Professor D, journeying with me. And we just pray, oh Lord, that we would honor you tonight in your text. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Make any thoughts while I pull up the Bible here? I forgot to open up. Any thoughts on Philippians 2 ahead of time? Well, You're one of the big things I, I told the class was that Philippians 2 is also one of those favorite chapters of mine, and mm -hmm. primarily because of verses 5 through 11. Right? Yeah. Okay. My, I forgot to open up my, my, my Bible file here, so I have it now. So we are... We're going to be in verses 1 to 5 to start off with. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or, or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So, Mick, how does he approach them in verse one? This idea of any encouragement, comfort, that kind of stuff. What's he going about there? Well, I think I think you know when he's talking about that, you know, the ifs. Paul's really just kind of setting up a, a series of rhetoricals right there, uh, because the answer to all of these better be yes, right? you know. And and if you notice carefully, this all hinges on in Christ. This this is very much like Ephesians uh, in in that. If there's any encouragement from our union with and being in Christ, yes. If there is any comfort of love, again, the answer better be yes. If there is fellowship with the spirit, it better be yes. Um, affections and compassion, yes, yes, and yes. All of these are supposed to have the yes answer. And I like when Paul does these kind of conditional things because he's really uh, kind of involving the, the readers to think these things through very well. So, so now we're playing with that rhetoric, assuming that all those answers are yes. So now what would complete Paul's joy in verse two? Well, again, very much like also with the Philippians, Paul's also pushing for unity here as well. Uh, note the word same twice in, in these few verses. And he goes on to say to be of the same mind and same love. Uh, to be of the same mind is to be in agreement with the gospel and, and everything that it encompasses, the whole message of the gospel from from the fact that we are sinners, that we need God, only God can forgive us. Everything that is the gospel message, you know, uh, to be in the same love. Well, if you're not in the same mind, you won't be in the same love, which is the love of Jesus. Um, there needs to be unity among believers, uh, especially on the essentials. Amen. Amen. And so what in verse three he kind of paints a picture by giving like a base attitude what, what what's that attitude well i'll start with the positive it means that that you think of others and that is that you are thinking more of the needs of others than of your own uh the main drive of, of that is that you are not being selfish or self-centered and, and 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 where he's going with with the negative aspect of that imperative is is to not do the selfish things to and not not be you know for your own selfish self-centered glory. Yeah, it's it's as if he's saying, "Hey, you're in Christ, so this yeah. better be you." Yeah, this better describe you because you're in Christ. And, yeah. and, and so he, right. he he takes this very idea 
of so in principle three, he then applies it in verse four and then also in verse five. So how does he how does he tie this now to Jesus? And, and this is and this is a great buildup on Paul's part. So it's essentially he, he ties it back to Jesus because it's essentially the golden rule in practice. And, and notice Paul isn't saying to hate yourself or to ignore or deny your own needs. What he is saying, though, is take a genuine interest in others as well. From there, he goes to the ultimate standard. Not, not, and this is where I love where he's going into verse five, because the, the ultimate standard of this is none other than Jesus himself. And talk about a high bar there. Yeah, because it looks like he's going to transition to Jesus here. So mm -hmm. this very idea of you're in Christ, and that means your defining attitude needs to be doing nothing from selfish ambition, not, not living this conceited life, but living a humble life, putting others before you. So now he transitions to Jesus. And now, now we're going to see how Jesus illustrates that point. Cause we're expecting Jesus to illustrate that point. Mm -hmm. If you have this because you're in Jesus. So now we expect that. So we go now to verses six to eight and let me pull open. Here it is again. So I'll just, it's finishing in verse five. So I'll just reread verse five, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant or a slave, being born in the likeness of man. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So this is where we start to get into the high Christology here, Mick. So what is communicated about Jesus in verse 6? Well, first of all, th this is where we're this chapter in the book really gets really, really good. And I can't emphasize that enough. This is the quintessential passage on the deity of Christ. Uh, and in plain English, Jesus is, always has been, and always will be God. Exclamation point. I'm not even going to go period here. Exclamation point. Amen. Yeah, Mick, let, let, me, let me ask the question a little bit differently. Okay. And, and this is something you and I kind of chatted about before we, we started this Zoom. Is Paul making a point largely about Jesus here or Jesus, the son of God? Is he making a, a larger point about the second person of the Trinity, God, the son? I, I think he's making a, the second point of the son of God, the member of the Trinity, mm -hmm. you know, and what he's talking about here, uh, different than other passages where, where it talks about high Christology, is he's focusing on the incarnation, right? You know, and, and that's one of the things. And we have to understand that that all scripture supports itself. So right now, what he's focusing on is just what happens when when God, the son. Becomes a man when he enters the human race as a human being, because God, the son was there from the beginning of the creation. When, when you think about John 1, 1 in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. In other words, the word, the son of God has always existed. Right. Always has and always will. He never stopped being the son of God. And for that matter, the spirit too. God, the yes. Holy Spirit. Yes, the Holy all, Spirit. All three members of the Trinity. All three members were always there. Before Genesis 1-1, mm -hmm. all three were there. So let all us three were there. Man, let us make man in our image. That's the hour, the Trinity. That's the hour right there. So God, the son is always there. Always there. Always right. has been, always will be. Um, you know, we're eternal beings, you and I. We're eternal because there's, we have no end point. But what we are not, and this is where God is different than us, is we're not infinite beings. We have a starting point. God always was. I mean, we can't, we can't humanly possibly grasp how infinite God is. And Jesus, well, the son of God is that infinite God. So it sounds like Paul is wrestling theologically with with, 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 with what would be expressed in John chapter one, what, what you mentioned in the beginning was the word and the word was God and with, with God and God. Mm -hmm. So not, not a God, but the God. So yeah. sorry, sorry, Jehovah's witness friends, but, but yeah, so that, 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 that there's a second person involved here. There's, yes. there's God and then there's this word and this word is also God. And so, yeah. but, it, but, but it is different than this than God and now the word, which is also, yeah. so, so now as Paul wrestles with that, he wrestles now, he's really unpacking as John finishes this chapter there with verse 14 and the yeah. word became flesh. So here we have, it's almost like in verse six, seven and eight, it's not quite Jesus yet. It's still the son of God, yeah. but he, he's now, it's like Paul is theologically grappling with now the word becoming flesh. Yeah. And once the word becomes flesh, 
he became flesh and the person that would be named Jesus. That's and right. So now we can bring Jesus in. Yeah. But here is that one rare theological point where Paul gets to make this distinction. Yeah. And the son of God, the eternal, infinite son of God, as you described aptly, he's going to now empty himself. And so, and we'll, we'll kind of revisit verse six here. Yeah. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Okay, so what's being said there about, uh, once again, about, about God the Son, the second person of the Trinity here. Uh, but with this whole equality thing, is, is this an illustration of, of this idea that Paul said, hey, you're, you're think of others greater than yourselves. You're, not, you're, you're to live humbly. You're not to have you know, selfish ambition. Is this illustrating that? I think so. Um, you know, and I, here's a passage that we should have probably even started off with. And I was thinking about it. You know, Mark 10, 45, Jesus says this himself. For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You, and again, this sets up this whole humility thing that Jesus is going to be doing by showing that he is God, the infinite God, part of that great trio that is one God, takes the form of man, which basically is the greatest downgrade. When you're God eternal. To assume any other form, you're, you're downgrading yourself big time. And Jesus, this is the kind of humility, even humiliation, because again, if you're eternal God, to be even the greatest man is a step down. But this is what Jesus is doing by entering humanity. Right, right. He's taking a major step down to, to do this. And not only does he take a major step down, again, he doesn't come into a palace. He is born where animals do their business right the gospels don't portray jesus like like revelation 19 does no i mean, no, I mean he, he's this jesus is not kardashian <laughs> so he's coming in a very humble way yes that's, that's quite a, as verse 7 says he emptied himself taking the yeah. form of a slave now being born in the likeness of man so so now you're saying what 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 paul is telling us about about God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, the one who is going to, in flesh, become Jesus, be, receive the name Jesus as he as he's you know born in a manger. We remember this at Christmas time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So anything else being communicated here? Being born in the likeness of man, he's a servant here in verse seven. In verse seven. So what 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 he's saying in verse seven though is that even though Jesus is God, what he's doing is he's he's. He, he was willing to check his God privileges. And I like that translation. I think it's the NLT that says it that way. Cause that honestly, while we, the word emptied is the more literal translation of it. It's more the idea that he's taking his God privileges for a while. He, he's, he's checking them at, at, at his home and he's coming down to be one of us. You know, there was that one song in the nineties, you know, what, what if God was one of us? Well, 2000 years ago, the answer was given in the Bible. God became one of us. Okay, so he checks his God privileges there, and he momentarily gives up his creature, no, not creature, correction, creator comforts. He rolls up his sleeves. He, he gets dirty. He gets down and dirty with us. Uh, not morally, mind you, but in, in the mire of the human experience, of human existence. I mean, so he basically checks his God. The way I, I, I would explain this is like, you're an employee. I'm an employee. When we go on vacations, we do not stop being an employee. We may not be taking the calls and answering the emails, but we are still the same person. So if you will, Jesus took a sort of vacation, if we can call it that, to be down here with us. And so closing this section, Mick, verse eight, your thoughts on verse eight. Uh, well, here's the thing. Jesus was obedient in everything. Uh, not only did Jesus become a man, not only did he enter the world into humble circumstances, notice he didn't enter in a palace, and I have to emphasize that. Not only did he die, not only did, did he die humiliating criminal's death. I mean, you know, he really obeyed God. He asked in Gethsemane, Father, you know, I know we planned this together back when, but I'm just, gonna, I'm just saying as a man now, if there's a chance of me passing this up, is there a chance? Take he this obeyed the Father. Yeah, I think that illustrates uh, something in theology that not a lot of people really dis discuss or think about, but there is a functional submission within the members of the Trinity, Yeah, where the Son submits to the will of the Father, and that, that was the greatest moment of that is here in verse 8, 
he was obedient, even if it cost him the death that he came, he became word became flesh. And now that flesh had the possibility of dying and that obedience required that sacrificial death. Yeah. And so he was obedient. So the son was obedient to the father and John or in John 14 and 16, Jesus kind of describes the spirit as going to teach everything that I've told you. Mm -hmm. So it's like the spirit seems to be in a functional way, submitting to Jesus and also the father. Mm -hmm. And so there seems to be a submission of the Godhead, which we just got done studying Ephesians and we're, we're, we're all these relationships that are meant to submit. And so here we have even the son and the best point is in Gethsemane. Take this, take this cup from me, but you know what? Not my will, your will be done. Yeah. So here we have this submission, the, the ultimate submission, the ultimate obedience. Because in the Roman world, only two kinds of people, I read this the other day, only two kinds of people got the cross. The first one was an insurrectionist or a traitor. And the second one was a wayward slave. If mm-hmm. a slave ran away and a slave, because so I find it interesting that here he took the form of a slave, but he wasn't a wayward slave. He was a very obedient slave, mm-hmm. obeying the father's will. And he and that obedience still led to a cross, but it yeah. wasn't a cross to punish. It was a cross to provide and to, to deliver. Yeah. And we look back at that cross. So I find that that connection just blew my mind with, in terms of he was either a political criminal or a wayward slave. And here he was. He took the form of a slave or a servant. Yeah, it's kind of cool. All yeah. right. That's that's six to eight. Make, that, that was fun. This is this is where theology becomes fun because we're, we're pondering some of the what ifs here. And, you know, the, the son of God always was before mm-hmm. he received the name Yeshua. He, he was eternal, infinite. All right. So nine to 11, it, it keeps getting better here. So let me pull this open again. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. Wow. So, Professor D, what did the father do in verse nine? So this is where it gets really beautiful because of Jesus's perfect obedience. And mind you, you know, the only way anyone can be obedient is if they, if they are humble. And and that's one of the points that Paul's trying to make in this passage, but because of the perfect obedience of Jesus, God, the father rewards Jesus, the man now by making it unquestionably clear that Jesus the man is now the God man to all peoples of all time, everywhere, everyone. Wow. Mic drop. Mic drop. Well, he's going to have another mic drop here in a moment too. Oh yeah. Yeah. He highly exalted him, bestowed him on the name. Yeah. And, and that's one of those things where you get to revelation 19, Jesus is going to have three names. Mm-hmm. He's going to have, he's going to be called faithful and true. He's going to be called King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I think he wears that one as a sash. And then he's got a name that nobody knows. So no one's going to lay a glove on that name. No, no one has, no one, no one knows that name until the very end. And so here's this name above every other name. And that's cool. So he rewards that obedience. How how great, how great is that? The self-emptying, humble, obedient servant is exalted over all. What an image for these Philippians. What an image for us, because we are to be self-emptying, humble, and obedient servants in Christ. Because Christ was that self-emptying, humble, obedient servant. And now, not only that, but I think there's there's also a lesson there to people who feel entitled. Here's Mm. Jesus, who is God. And he's opting to to not be that entitled person. Wow. So good. So now, what are the results of all that? All all the exalting. Now, the exalting of verse 9, what the Father did. What's the results of that now in verse 10? Yeah, well, that means that everyone, and that includes those who would rather not, even his enemies, right, is is going to have to worship Jesus. Everyone is going to recognize Jesus as God. When it uses the word that Jesus is Lord, we, we have to understand that word Lord, Kyrios in the Greek, is the same word that was used in the Septuagint whenever it substituted the name of Jehovah God. Wow. So they are making it clear right from, because people always ask, well, you know, Jesus being God, that was kind of an invention that his later disciples made. No, that was right there from the get-go. That was right there from the beginning. This is, uh, again, we've dated this around 62 AD. That means very early on, they were worshiping Jesus as God. Jesus was not a good teacher. He was not a moral teacher. He, well, he, was, was, a, he was a good teacher, but, but he's well, not yes, just a good teacher. <laughs> he was not just a good teacher. Right, yeah. right, right, right. He was not just a good teacher. 
who's not just the moral teacher. He is God. And, and that was believed right from the onset. They worshiped him as such. Yeah, we get the idea even under the earth. So at people mm-hmm. of all times, all cultures, yeah. dead or alive. I mean, yeah. you see, your, your knee is going to bow and your tongue is going to confess. You are either going to be doing that in servitude of Jesus or in submission to Jesus. You're either going to be doing that to praise him or you're going to be on your knees as, as a slave. So, you know, the guys, the, the, the guys that took over the, 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 the planes on 9-11 and crashed them into the towers, they met King Jesus that night and their knees bowed and their tongue confessed. It's Christopher like, Hitchens, same deal. Same deal. So we enter into eternity with our knees bowed. And it doesn't matter what color you are, what language you speak, all people, all times, everywhere. It's like God has exalted this Christ now above all those categories. Yeah. And so, yes, that is like history gets to be fulfilled in that moment where we all bow and we all confess. And so honestly, I would rather be one who is doing it out of worship than doing it because the boots on my neck. Yeah. I'm just saying it's it's his enemies and his friends and, and the ones worshiping and that's him the, the thing that we need to realize it's going to happen so it's best to get with the program amen oh well that's 9 10 and, and 11 I, I love how you pointed that that ling- linguistic thing out I, I might say more about that towards the end but but yeah that that's great the septuagint that that was the bible that if, you, if you've ever been reading your new testament and, and, and a new testament writer quotes the old testament and and you look in your footnotes and go, oh, yeah, that came from here. So you go back in the Old Testament and look up the citation and you realize, you know what? It, it didn't quote exactly. Something was off. Well, something was off. It was because it's been translated now a second time. It's It was Paul or James, whomever, was quoting most likely the Septuagint. So they was translating. He was quoting this Greek because most of them didn't understand Hebrew per se. And so Paul probably more than most. But they all understood Greek because yeah, they yeah. wrote they wrote in Greek. And so they could go back to the Old Testament that was made for them yeah. in the Septuagint. And so the translations, there might be a little bit of word differentiation there because it's being translated a second time. Yeah. But, you know, but there's yeah. a beautiful thing there, too, with that, because, again, people get sometimes caught up with translations. I know this is more of a sidebar, but it's like, you know, oh, no, it's got to be the King James. No, it doesn't have to be the King James. It can be the NLT. It can be the ESV, NASB. We see that God is endorsing the use of the Septuagint. In other words, God's, God's a fan of translations. Right. All he wants is accuracy and faithfulness. And in verse 11, God gets the most possible glory by exalting the son. Yeah. The one who is obedient even unto death, he's now exalted above all and that to the glory of God the Father. Yeah. That gives God the most possible glory. And it is that point that I believe Paul drops the mic. It's like, yeah. that was the oh, mic. Yeah, drop. definitely. And, and I, I, mean, I love I loved in the Greek text, it's like, especially in the, the Nestle Allen version of the Greek yeah. that, that I trained, that, that most Bible scholars translate from today, it's nice and it's lowercase letters except for proper names. Until you get to that point, Kyrios, Jesus, Christa, it's like all caps. It's like as most emphasis as you can possibly have, Jesus Christ is Lord. And I mean, boom, it's just it's exploding off the page. And I personally... And th- th- this is me theologically. I take I could take the entire New Testament and boil it down to that verse. Yeah. Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the gospel, man. Ultimately, everything in the gospel hinges on that. I mean, th- there's another verse like it. It's in Acts 2, 36. And he says, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. So you get the same idea of Kyrios all over mm-hmm. again, right there and Christos. So that, yep. that verse also, I'd ha- I would have to include that in here, but so this very idea where Jesus says in John 10, I and the father are one. So now Jesus Christ is Kyrios. Kyrios being the, the Greek word that they use to translate the Yahweh word of the old Testament. And so, yes, in a functional sense, Jesus says, I and the father were the same. I mean, yeah. we're, and we're, we're different persons, but we're, we're, we have a oneness about us. Mm-hmm. And so they're picking up rocks at that point. Like yeah. who is he saying that he is? And so, well, Paul is saying he's saying it because he's curious. Yeah, he is it. He is Lord. The same word used for Yahweh is in the same sentence for Jesus. 
That's it. I, I reduced the entire New Testament to that. If you have, if you made me do it in one verse, that's my verse. Jesus Christ is Lord. He, yeah. I mean, he really Yahweh. doesn't get much better than that. I mean, Yahweh, a, this is definitely one of those great chapters. So good. Yeah. So good. So we continue here with 12 to 13. And another famous, famous verse in, in Philippians. Therefore, mm -hmm. my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So what he's saying something about us doing some kind of a working and God doing a working or well, what's going on with us first? What's this work out your salvation, Nick? All right. Well, well okay. So there's an interplay between uh, this is all in the context of humility and obedience. So we have to keep right. that in, in mind as we're reading this. We can't just like all of a sudden just look at that and, and just, oh, okay, that's, you know, we got to take that and not realize that it, it, there's a larger context here. So it's all in the context of humility and obedience. From the start to the finish, salvation is something that, that has always been God's baby. If you look at these verses carefully, it says what? God is at work in you. Right. See, a lot of times what happens is people read verse 12 and they pretend there's a period there. Right. You know, work out your salvation. Oh, well, there it is. No, it's not. There it is. It, there, there's a comma there. It's, it's, it's a continuing thought, you know, and that continuing thought is that God is at work in you, both to will and work for his good pleasure. So we got to keep it in the context of, of what's going on there. So it is God working on our salvation. The imperative to work out our salvation needs to be understood in light of that. So with that understanding, to work out our salvation means that God is working in us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling that we, we continually, the idea is that we continually grow in our reverence to him and continually choose to follow his will instead right. of our own, just like Jesus did. And we like to cite Gethsemane. That is what it means to do it with fear and trembling. In other words, that I take God seriously. Yeah. Cause Paul did this also in Ephesians chapter two, mm -hmm. You're, you're saved not by works, but now you're created. Now these works yeah. are still in advance for you. Yeah. So works aren't going to save you, but God no. still expects you to work, do work. No, but but that's the big thing. And I know this because I used to be one of these guys that used to do that. I would I would stop and say that phrase. And then when I would go back, you know, and look at it carefully, I'm like, oh, snap, there is a comma there. I mean, it, it is a passage that you have to work to understand. But again, in light of the larger context, it makes better sense to understand it is growing in our reverence to him right? and that he's handling the salvation. That verse 13 should really be the clincher that it's not us doing the salvation. Right. I, I think it's a failure of the English language and kind of the, the colloquialisms of that, because, for example, make if, if you had a problem and let's say you had, I don't know, let's say a, a part went off on your car or something, you had an issue you had to deal with. And I, being a rotten friend, let's say, came up to you and said, Mick figure it out, go work it out, go take care of it. And so in English, we would say, well, I got to figure it out now. Now it's all up to mm -hmm. me. I got to work it out. Yeah. I got to figure it out. And that's not at all what this is saying, because yeah. in that analogy, God's done all the figuring out. All I bring to salvation is a sin that needs to be dealt with. I do nothing. Salvation is all grace. I don't deserve yeah. it. Nothing like that. So there's nothing for me to work out. This is more of so it's not like, okay, I've got to figure out my salvation, my own salvation. I got to figure this out. Otherwise, I don't know what I'm going to do. So many people look at verse 12 and say, well, I got to figure out salvation because this Bible just told me to. No, no, no. That's, that, that's just the English fails us there. If you're going to use working out, I like it in terms of I, I, I played a, a year of college football and I always remember the night before a game. So if it was, we played games Saturday morning. So, so Friday night, we got to go to a spaghetti shop some Italian restaurant and they fed all of us football players, a bunch of carbs. And there was a method to that madness thinking that you're going to work off those carbs come 10 o'clock the next morning when you suit up. And so marathoners or runners may, may take some, you know, carb, they drink some orange juice, yeah. they get some carbs in them and they work it out from yeah, a yeah, from a biological standpoint, you're building up glycogen for your lactic acid. Okay. So you're doing these things all on the treadmill. So here it is. I would view it like, okay, God's already done the heavy lifting, but he's expecting you to work out. He's providing you the means to work. Now work it, baby. Work it, work out, work out, work out. Pump that iron working out kind of thing. And you pump that iron, you're working it out in the context, like you said, in humility and obedience. 
by being obedient to this very God who saved you, not so much. I have to figure out how I'm going to get saved. Yeah, exactly. I say that that's, that's how it makes sense to me. Yeah. And, and the whole work out your salvation, that just sounds so wrong. Look, the truth is that when Paul talks about salvation, he talks about a peace of mind that goes with it. If you have to work it out, it kind of takes away from that peace of mind that, that he's always talking about. Right. He always, well, how does he open his letters? Grace and peace. Right. You know? Well, speaking of attitudes, he's going to continue here in 14 to 18. Do all things with, without grumbling or disputing. That you, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, this is Paul saying, he said, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So, what what does he communicate in verse 14, Mick? And and he makes it, he ties it in with verse 15. So do things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless. What's going on there? So basically, you won't be blameless and innocent if you if you're grumbling and disruptive because grumbling and disruptiveness works against unity. Again, you have to keep it in the larger context here, which which can only happen when you're humble and obedient. This, this all ties together, everything that he's written up to this point. None of this is, is throwaway stuff that, that Paul's using as filler material for the letter. Notice Paul says that believers are what? He says that they are light. Not that they're becoming light. Again, working against that whole thing about working out your salvation. Oh, you have to work on becoming light. No, you are light already. He's already identifying you as such. So he says that the, the believers are light, not that they're becoming light, and that we need to light the way for people to see Jesus. This reminds me of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount discussion where, where he says that, a light is to be seen so people can see the way. Don't dim it. Don't hide it. This is what grumbling and that 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 sort of stuff does. Light doesn't stop being light, but but it can be hidden and dimmed. And this is what that's when grumbling is going on. You know, when the what the lost need, those who Paul says are the crooked and perverse generation, they need light. Grumbling and disputing that works against our light. Right. Yeah, Jesus didn't say cause your light to shine or make your no. light shine. He said let your light shine. Yeah, the like, big warning that Jesus is gave is don't hide it. Right. He's already given the light. He's already the light of the world. But now shine it. Yeah. Like you 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 will stand out in this dark room in this perverse and wicked generation. And I mean, goodness, if Paul's going to call, I mean, I realize he had Nero as a king, but but you know what? We have our own Neros. Even continuing on, it's like if he could say that about his generation, imagine what he might say about ours. And here we are now, we need to let our light shine. We need yeah. to be different and, and, and noticeably different. Uh, what, what does verse 16 picture about them and Paul? What's he saying there in verse 16? I, I think verse 16 expresses an earthly perspective. This, this, kind, of, um, this is kind of how uh, he begins his chapter, make my joy complete. He starts off the chapter this way. And it's kind of the idea of, of, of put a cherry on top of my, my Sunday here. You know, which is good in it, in it. The Sunday's good in and of itself, but but you know, put, putting that cherry, you know, really makes it complete. You know, look, overall, this is a positive letter, but but you have you are always concerned about not having wasted your time. You know, and he I is mean, in prison. Yeah, I mean, so yeah, so I, I think what Paul's <laughs> expressing, knowing well that he hasn't wasted his time, he knows nothing that we do for the Lord is ever done in vain. So mm. he knows that it's not in vain. So. It's that there is something he'll need to address later in this letter. So that's kind of what he's making sure, because he wants to make sure that they're doing things right. And there is going to be an issue. Again, this is a happy letter. This is a very positive and encouraging letter. But there is something that he's going to be more specific to towards the end. Right. And so how did Paul see himself in verse 17? He said a drink offering. What's, what's yeah. all about? So I, he sees himself as a living sacrifice. Again. Paul expresses joy and is optimistic about the expectation of him getting out of jail. But, and it's that joy and suffering in, in, in the same breath that Paul has been setting up in this whole letter. Yeah, he, he, makes, he makes an Old Testament reference here. You've got the main sacrifice. See, if you look back in the Old Testament sacrificial system, the drink offering wasn't much at all. Mm. It's like you had your main sacrifice. Maybe it was an animal, let's just say a lamb. 
And then maybe you had a grain offering in there. And so you, you put in some, some wafers or whatever, the, the, the cake mixed with flour and oil. Okay. And then at the very end, to make everything smell pretty, God had Moses or Aaron pour the cooking wine over all the top to make everything smell really great. It, the drink offering was just the last little thing you added at the end. It wasn't the main thing because the same God who told Israel, don't you eat any blood or drink any blood? Well, you're not going to pour blood on God's altar. So they poured br blood around the altar on the outside. They mm -hmm. splashed it against the sides. They dabbed it on the horns on top of the altar, but it did not go on the altar because God mm -hmm. wasn't going to symbolically eat blood. So what did God eat? Well, God took the red wine. And so yeah, that yeah. symbolized the blood. Okay. All right. We're looking last supper. That looks nice. Yeah. Here it is. The drink offering was just the precious little thing poured out at the end. Yeah. So now Paul's saying here, the main sacrifice of your faith, you're the one that's the doing all the, the big, you're, it's your faith that's the big sacrifice. And I think there's a great hum, humbling moment for Paul. He's yeah. like, I'm just a little bit poured out at the end. Yeah. We, we look at Paul, we're like, man, you're the man. I mean, you are the main offering. And he's like, no, he's like, I'm just being poured out at the end. And the same, the, the, the same God who poured the God, the son who poured himself out. Yeah. Like, Here I am. I'm being poured out. My meager efforts are coming in at the end. It's your faith that's on the altar. Yeah. I think that would be greatly encouraged because these Philippians probably didn't think they were much to write home about. And here are their great leaders in prison. And now Paul is encouraging them. It's like, yeah. it is your faith. And I'm just the, 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 white, the, the red wine poured out on top of it all. That's yeah. all it is. I'm just completing the spaghetti sauce, essentially. That, that's it. <laughs> He's just the drink offering. What a humbling moment. Yeah. We would think Paul would see himself as the main offering. Like he's the main dude and look what he did. Look what he accomplished. Nah, I, I just, I find that Mick, I find that fascinating. Yeah. And again, it, it stays so well in line with the whole humility thing that he's been emphasizing. Mm. Well, and what's the importance he talks about being glad or satisfied and rejoicing in verse 18. What's going on there? What's the so, importance? Again, Paul knows that they, they, they're going through stuff. And in the same way that, that he's able to find joy in his messed up circumstances he expects no less from them. Um, you know, we are all to, to share in our joy. Mm. Amen. Well, well, Paul brings it home with a couple of personal notes. And these, mm -hmm. these, this last chunk, we've, we've done all the heavy lifting here in terms of the, the, the theology of this text. But Paul brings it home with a note about Timothy and a note about a Epaphroditus. So we'll start with Timothy 19 to 24. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Wow. So what does Paul highlight about Timothy here? What stands out? I think the big thing is that Timothy is that guy that has the same mind as Paul, what Paul's been telling them to be, same mind and same love. That's what, what Timothy is. He's the guy that's the same mind and the same love that, that he mentioned earlier in this chapter. He, he's very united with Paul in all things gospel. Uh, we all need to be like Timothy to Paul with, with, with other gospel-centered people, with other Christ-centered believers. I mean, wouldn't that be awesome if we all love Jesus the same way? Wow. Now, there's some of our Catholic friends that, that believe something different about Timothy, that he is Paul's son. And it, what was... Well, in the words of Han Solo, they're wrong. <laughs> they're wrong. I mean, I thought about this the other day. I, I've got a son, and, and, and so I know you do too, my friend. But imagine you talk to your son. You said, hey, son, hey, boy, you're like a son to me. Well, I would expect, and I've got a 10-year-old, I would expect my 10-year-old with a very soft heart. That would, would be a downgrade, wouldn't it? I expect him to take umbrage at that point. It's like, I'm like a son to you? Like it's a like, son? No, you're not like a son. You are my son. And so Paul here is using a simile. Yeah. Like an as. He is as a son to me. Yeah. That means he's not his son. So Paul, we understand, did not get married. We, we probably assume he did not have sex to produce an heir or anything like that. Timothy is like a son. If you're going to argue that Timothy is a son, please make the, the nuance of a spiritual son. But he is not Paul's literal son. He's as a son. We need to get that out there. There are some people out there that are confused by that. 
that that you know he's got a son. No, he's like. Well, remember we talked about this uh, in some other lesson that Timothy had a Greek father. Right. I mean, he and that's why he needed to get circumcised. Right. You know, this is why Titus never bothered with it. You know, so I mean, the point being that Timothy had a different father, and this was kind of established in other scripture. What was Paul's great hope here regarding the Philippians as he ends this little section about Timothy? I think it's in uh, verse 24. So, I, yeah, so his, his big hope here is that he expects, you know, so I'm sending Timothy ahead, but the idea is I, I'm expecting to get out of here soon, too. And yeah, I'm he says, I got, I got to see how it's going to go. He says, I say, I got to see how it's going to go with me. Because, you know, he's in Nero's backyard. And so he doesn't yeah. know. He doesn't know. He's appealed to Caesar. So he has to have his moment before Caesar. Yeah. He doesn't know what Caesar's going to do. I think he yeah. thinks he's going to get off. Be able to, he's going to be freed. We don't know. But he's like, I can't travel back to see you guys in Philippi because I'm here at most likely in Rome. Again, yeah. if he was in Ephesus or some other place, like other arguments for Philippians are, this would be an easier sentence. But if he's in Rome, I don't know how he's expecting to get back there. Especially, you know, Acts seems that they indicate he's wanting to go to Spain. And yeah. so I don't know when Paul would get back to Philippians, but it's a nice thing to say. Yeah. He wants to get back to his But, but he has that expectation. He's got a good feel for this first of his two Roman imprisonments here, you know? Yeah. And so we, he goes next 25 to 30 to Epaphroditus. I know Epaphroditus has uh, Aphrodite in his name somewhere, but he's not yeah. Aphrodite. Okay. Epaphroditus, here we go. I have thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. Dang. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am more eager to send him, the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice in seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Oh, he takes a little shot there at the end, doesn't he? Well, I'm not sure if that's what he's doing there. I think what he's kind of saying is that obviously you can't make it all yourselves here. All right. You know, you guys sent him. I think that's where he's going with. I can't see him taking a pot shot here, you know? He did say what was lacking. I mean, that, that, yeah. that, that, that made like, okay, I know you, maybe you're right. I, I'm, I'm, we're going to assume you're right on that, that Paul is just, is just not spanking them like he did for the Galatians. He's just yeah. giving them nothing but good news. So he says a lot about Epaphroditus. What, what were the words? He's got uh, my brother, worker, yeah, yeah. soldier, soldier messenger, yeah. minister. I mean, dang. It's like, I mean, I realize I, 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 I've got, you know, a bone in this one here, but or a bone, I, 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 I'm jaded on this, but he sounds like a care pastor. Here he yeah. is willing to do, walk into Paul's mess, care for Paul's mess, no matter what it does to him, no matter how, and he's, he's dying because of it. he's like, I don't, I mean, my goodness, uh, but yeah, he sounds, he sounds like the kind of pastor that journeys with people that really struggles with people and brings them through their mess. That's kind of cool. I, that's, oh, yeah. that's that's my world right now, so it, it speaks to me. We're going to see Epaphroditus one day. He and I are going to go, hey, all right, man, all right. <laughs> all right, so what does Paul communicate more about him? What, 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 so, so what he's saying about Epaphroditus uh, is, is that, you know, he's a stand-up guy and a believer. Uh, he's dedicated to the Lord, and he's hardworking. He, he's a caring guy and a real servant. Again, tying to the whole thing with this chapter, servant, humility. You know, he's a real good guy. Uh, at some point, we see that he got sick and 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 it's it's and it scared uh and had everybody scared that was because everybody was concerned about him. Well, you know, Paul obviously thanks God because you know that's one less headache that he needed, you know, to, to see to see this good soldier servant friend die. So God spared Paul on on that level, but He also spared Epaphroditus and the Philippian believers who did. You know, obviously he was not probably that age where you know he was ready to take that that last dirt nap yet based on you know our expectations of things so paul thanks god because of this for saving him and in, and in doing so you know again paul paul doesn't have to to have this additional anguish on top of you know other stuff that he's going through i i don't like the fact that that paul had anxiety but i also kind of like the fact that paul had anxiety the same paul that in two chapters is going to tell the philippians don't be anxious about anything Mm -hmm. dude, dude has some anxiety right here 
Yeah. Like, so that I may be less anxious. Yeah. All right. All right. That speaks to us who are struggling. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yep. Anything else in 28 to 30, anything else to round out this section about Epaphroditus before we get to our closing thoughts? Well, not, not, not now uh, that he was pretty much at, at the end of his sentence, you know, Paul, you know, he, he was happily returning Epaphroditus to, to them so that they can share in the joy and the triumphant return and with, with positive updates from Paul, about Paul. You know, Paul's essentially telling them to welcome him as a, as a you know, give him a hero's welcome. People mm. who sacrifice for the gospel should be recognized, you know, and if you know, the scripture is full of things like that, you know, the workers, is, you know, is due his wages, you know, and things like that. And this is a guy who labored for the Lord and he should be recognized and we should do the same thing. And even more practical terms for us, you know, with, with, with people that we send out in the mission field, you know, you know, some of these places, oh, it's not a dangerous place. It looks like it's a vacation or paradise. They, they can get sick from stuff they didn't know about. That's why, if you ever notice, why, why is customs so tight about what comes in and out and we think it's innocuous, but it's actually because they're trying to protect things because we're not used to them. You know, they talked about how the natives got wiped away because of diseases the Europeans brought that they didn't have the immunities for. So yeah, we, these guys deserve heroes, well, um, you know, welcomes and, 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 and people who sacrifice for the gospel should be recognized. There's nothing wrong with acknowledging those who do service for the kingdom. Especially right. when it goes above and beyond. And, and, and this sounds like an above and beyond. Amen. My brother, what is your closing thought for tonight? Well, I absolutely love, again, the section between 2, 5 through 11. Uh, I, I get excited about the affirmations of Jesus being God. You know, um, I get excited in seeing his love for me in display in the way that he displayed it there. Think about it. Jesus. God eternal, God the son, checking his God card to become a man. Mm. Wow. It's, it's like that one song. Jesus didn't want heaven without us, so he came and brought heaven to us in his person. And, and not, not only that, but, but he gives us the ultimate example of being a servant. He gives us the greatest vindication story of all time, you know, um, when we see how he suffered and, and is ultimately rewarded, that's like the, the ultimate, like, while we don't like what he went through, we like the reward. So when he, he gives says us hope and it gives us inspiration for why we, it's what emboldened the disciples to, right. to become the super apostles that they became. And yet here's the kicker though. We, I struggle with humility. Mm. Mm. There it is. And, 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 you know, I struggle with humility. And I'm like, what is wrong with me? So you got to do this is where it's like, thank you, Jesus, for doing what mm -hmm. I sure as hell can't. And, right. and please help me to move in that direction. I want to be like you. I want, instead of, I don't want to be like Mike. Forget about Gatorade. I don't want to be like Mike. I want to be like oh. Jesus. I want to be Damn. like Jesus. I mean, honestly, man, this is great stuff. And, 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 and it's great not because it, you know, I'm doing it well. It's great because, man, that is what, that is the bar I need. Wow. I love that. Yeah. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or, or NIV calls it vain conceit. I almost yeah. said it when I read it because I memorized it that way. Yeah. Yeah. And he, and he, and he accents that with not even God, the son, not even the second person of the Trinity is going to act out of ambition. Yeah, like he didn't try to grasp a hold of what he had, you know, from eternity. Mm -hmm. Instead, he humbled himself. I mean, that's yeah. oh man. So if that's not a lesson to us, okay. So so my, how I'm landing the plane is not nearly as great as what as what Mick just said. I'm gonna go linguistic. I, I've been wrestling with this in the back of my head. I, I want to go there. I really like how Paul drew upon Isaiah 45 23, where God's speaking and he says, "By myself I have sworn." My mouth has uttered this in all integrity, a word that will not be revoked. And here it is. God says, before me, every knee will bow. By me, every tongue will swear or confess. It's like, so Paul's just borrowing this big, great, big Yahweh image from Isaiah 45 mm -hmm. to tie it to Jesus being curious, being Lord. And so I love that. I love in John 10, I mentioned this briefly, but I just love what Jesus, listen to the high Christology of this. This is Jesus speaking in John 10, starting in verse 27. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. 
I give them eternal life. Like what guy is going to say this? Mm -hmm. If he's just a guy, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. So this is your, if you're, if you're, if you're like me, if you're a once saved, always saved kind of person, this is your verse. No one will be able to snatch them out of my hand. Now he goes to my father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. Then he says, I and the father are one. I love this because as you brought up, make about the Septuagint, Septuagint translated the Hebrew Yahweh with Kyrios or Lord. And so that made it so that ancient Jews and even modern, you know, more, more, you know, Orthodox Jews, they won't say the name Yahweh. They'll, they'll either replace it with Adonai. In fact, my wife still works for Jews today in, in her job. And she says, they won't even write the word God. They'll write a capital G, a hyphen, and then a D. They won't even finish out the word God because they want to respect. And so from time immemorial, since all the way back in, in the Old Testament, they were used to calling God Yahweh Lord. So they call him Adonai, which means Lord. So we got that idea. So when they translated when they translated Yahweh in the Septuagint, they kind of took Caesar's name, Kyrios. He's king of kings and lord of lords. He's Caesar of Caesars. They took, they took that Kyrios, the greatest possible word to describe a lord, and they gave that to Yahweh. That describes Yahweh. So now, now the, the Greek-speaking Jews can now still call Yahweh lord. So now in, in, in Philippians chapter 2, we have these first century Christians who are already want, wanting to call God Lord, they can still call God the Father Yahweh. So now they have a word they can use for God the Son, the Lord Jesus. They can call him Kyrios. So they can still reserve Yahweh for Yahweh, even though Jesus' theological point is the oneness of him and the Father, and the oneness of you know Jesus Christ being that Yahweh, oneness with Yahweh here, Yahweh is still distinct as the Father, now Kyrios Christos, that is Jesus God the Son. So now the first century Christian had a great hymn they could sing in praise. They could call out to the greatest possible name, Jesus Christ the Lord, a name exalted above all. So now Christians, we have we have this great name we can call, the great name. We can end our prayers praying in that name. We get to have this great doxology to put with our theology. I love this because we are not lacking. We get, Jesus right, right. is not second place. He and the Father, there's a oneness there. So we who pray to Jesus, we who trust in Jesus alone for our salvation, yes, curious. Jesus, Christos, we have him. Amen and amen. It really doesn't get better than that, my friends. Yes. The high Christology of Philippians chapter two. What a blessing and honor. This has been Masterclass Theology. I'm Big Rev. And I'm still Professor D. God bless. Amen. This has been Masterclass Theology. I pray you've been challenged and encouraged during today's episode, and I hope you'll continue to join us as we journey through the Bible. God bless.